Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the show. We are continuing through the book of Revelation, but uh, this is kind of an interesting uh, shift where we're at because we've covered chapters one, two, and three. We're going to start in chapter four, which is another scene. Is that what you call it in your uh, in your commentary? Yeah. A, a scene shift or yeah, a uh, scene. Yeah. Yep. A, scene. Or a, a section is fine too. Yeah. Yeah. This is so section four, chapter four is definitely moving into a next uh, section of the book. So anything that we want to say about the podcast or the flow or anything uh, before we get into the text? Well, I got a confession here before we get started because last I, episode, I'm not a priest, so you can't give that to me. That's true. But uh, last episode, we mentioned the fact that we're going to pick up the pace. You know, we, I think we did like eight episodes in the seven messages. And uh, so we're going to pick up the pace. We're going to do chapters four and five. We are not going to do chapters four and five today. We're going to be like, we're going to try to finish chapter four. That, but, and this is the great part of the book. Mm-hmm. One other announcement, by the way, that is. We just can't find good help, Vinny. We're just going to have to get rid of our... We need to fire our intern. We need to fire all of our help. I don't know where... But last week, two episodes went live. So if you are used to looking for one episode a week, you might have looked at one episode and didn't notice that two episodes went live. So stop this episode, go back and listen to the last week's episode, the second episode, and then pick up this week. And because of that, we're not going to load a new episode on Labor Days. So in next week, we will not load a new episode. But today we're going to get into chapter four of the book of Revelation. Nice. Good stuff. All right. Well, chapter four, and even before we start in chapter four, man, chapter four and five, well, first off, it's the book of Revelation. So we, like the popular conception is that it's just about scary, crazy stuff. Mm. I don't think it was till I was, I don't know, in my twenties when I really started reading the book of Revelation, when I realized how much worship music comes mm. from chapters four and five of oh, Revelation. Yeah. You, you just start thinking of any song that, has to do with the throne of God or, or casting down your crowns or yeah. sitting at the feet of Jesus or, you know, holy, holy, holy. I grew up Lutheran. We sang holy, 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 like all the time. It, it's like, you know, obviously yeah. it's, it's in, in Revelation chapter four, it comes from Isaiah, but man, this is like, there's so much worship music that yes, comes out is, of yeah, Revelation yeah. chapter four and five. So I, I just, yeah. I, these are two of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Yeah. In fact, when I was preaching through the book of Revelation in my last church, one of the things that we did when we got to chapters four and five is we said, this is a worship text. Mm. So instead of having like worship and then for 15 minutes and then announcements and then communion and then a sermon, we just sang a few songs. I got up and read a few verses. Then we sang a few songs. I got Mm. up and read a few verses Then we did communion. Then we'd read a few verses and we sang a few. We just kind of mixed the whole service together because you just have to worship as a result of this. And so it is a fantastic text for that. Nice. So we get in chapter four and this is oftentimes called the throne room scene. Yeah. And it's because it's centered around the throne of God. Right. Yeah. So I call this the second scene in the book of Revelation, the second story or the second section. The first story is John on Patmos uh, has a vision of Jesus and told to write the seven messages. Now a new scene breaks out because he's taken to a new location. We'll discuss that in a minute. He's taken into heaven and he sees God sitting on a throne. And so chapters four and five, you're in the throne room. So let's begin by reading chapter four, verses one and two. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing in heaven, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is something where I, I know I grew up in, uh, you know, a popular, popular view of mm-hmm. end times and whatnot. We, we referred to this as dispensationalism and specifically in the in the pre-trib rapture view of dispensationalism. Chapter four is where it's believed that this is where all the future stuff happens. This is where the rapture happens. Yep. And this is when the church is off of the earth for seven years. And now they're before God in heaven. So is, is this what's happening? Is this all future? Are we waiting for chapter, the events of chapter four to happen? Uh, no. The events of chapter four, I wouldn't even describe them as events, but that's okay. We'll use that language for now. Have already begun. The key thing, we discussed this when we just, when we did the word soon in chapter one in the book of Revelation, John's saying, these are things that are going to soon take place. And the word soon means that after something else happens, this happens shortly thereafter. And the question is, well, what's the something else that has to happen first? And then everything else begins to happen right after that. The central starting event in the book of revelation is the death and resurrection of jesus that's already happened therefore all these things are already taking place dispensationalism is a 
theological construct that's become very popular in the ninth in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, that basically says that God uh, that there are these dif- different dispensations that God dealt with the people uh, in, in one way in this era, then another era comes along and deals with people this way. So the Moses comes along and it's the era of or the dispensation of law, and then Jesus comes along and it's, and it's the dispensation of grace, and they just make this like calendar, this mapping out the way things are going to work. Within that scheme, what you may have been come familiar with is the idea that there's going to be these last seven years of human history in which all the things in the book of Revelation, well, starting in chapter four, they all begin to take place. The idea from that, in terms of reading Revelation, is that they go to chapter one, verse 19. This is where they get, this is where they get the structure of the book of Revelation from. And I'm going to say, this is not the right place to get the structure from, and we'll look at some, at some other examples. But chapter 1, verse 19 says, Therefore, John's told, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. So the idea is that John's writing the things that he saw, which is the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. He's writing then about the things that which are, which are the seven messages, the things which are. And then the, he's going to write about the things that will take place after these things. Oh, that's chapter 4. And it refers to the future. Now that makes actually kind of really good sense mm-hmm. if you're taking that as your key thesis statement of the book. The problem is, is that it totally ignores how John actually outlines the book. In chapter one, verse nine, it says, John says, I, John was in the spirit. He was on, I'm on the island of Patmos and I was in the spirit. And then he sees the vision of Jesus and he's told to write these things. Then in chapter four, verses one and two, and I'll put these references in the show notes because they're really central. In chapter four, verses one and two, which you just read, it says, after these things, the first voice, which I heard as a trumpet was speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you what must happen after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne. Yeah. So notice you have a change of scenery. Now there's your first clue. This is what the gospel of Luke does. And that is Luke's gospel is really hard to outline. We discussed this in our overview of Luke that you we want to study chapter 14, and then we'll study chapter 15, and we'll, you know, we do our daily devotional guide, and we use the chapter breaks as our where we start and where we stop. Well, what you'll notice in Luke's gospel is that he's on the same topic and the same theme and the same scene. All of a sudden, Luke will say, and then Jesus went from there to another place, and he met these people, and, and, da, 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 da. and so that's what Luke's way of telling you, hey, there's a change of scenery. So all of a sudden now, chapter four, John's taken to a new location. He was in the spirit and he was taken to heaven and he saw this. There's your change of scene. Now look at chapter 17, verse one, or one through three. I'm just going to kind of breathe. I won't read the, all three verses. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There you go. Carried away in the spirit. Here's a voice saying, come. And he goes to the wilderness, another location. That's why I call this a new scene or a new story or a new section because he's taken to a new location. Note 21, now chapter 21, verse 9. These are the four major sections, and I'll, re- and I'll re- review this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls for the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come, and I will show you. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great mountain. Now, it's clear that these four times, chapter 1, verse 9, John's in, on Patmos, Chapter 4, one, 1 and 2, he's taken to heaven. 17, 1 through 3, he's taken to a wilderness. And chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, he's taken to a mountain. There's your change of scenery, and there's your key uh, way of understanding the structure of the book of Revelation. And this is really going to be important as we proceed, because major questions of interpretation are really helped, or shall I say, maybe that they're answered or they're explained or understood best when we understood the structure of the book that John's cl- clearly laid out for us. So then just to summarize that real quickly, mm-hmm. the changing in locations, Patmos, heaven, wilderness, and mountain, these are the transitions in the book. This, this provides the outline of the book. Exactly. And in each of those transitions, not only is he taken to a due place, but it says he was in the spirit or carried away in the spirit, one of those two. And the latter three, chapter 4, 17, and 21, all use the verb uh, come, the exhortation come, and then they'll have, and I will show you. So clearly repetition, change of locations, come, I will show you, I was in the spirit, or I was carried away in the spirit, clear markers of the structure of the book of Revelation. Which is also significant, and we've talked about this in in a lot of the books, especially in the New Testament, where when you have an oral culture, you're used to hearing these things read, you're going to use markers that people Mm -hmm. are going to hear to identify, and it's going to ping their ears, they're going to know to listen for this and say, okay, something new is happening. 
because of the repetition. I've heard mm-hmm. him say, come and I will show you. And he's carried away earlier. We might go, well, that's kind of obscure. It's so far apart. They are trained to listen. We're trained to read. We're trained to see chapter breaks. We're trained to, trained to see subject headings. They're trained to listen because that's just mm-hmm. all they do. Mm-hmm. And so they're excellent listeners. So the repetition is going to be John's way of making uh, structural indications. And th- this is even something that today, like there's a difference between readers and hearers. I- I'll speak as a musician. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember going into college. I was a music major. I had the ability to make as a college freshman, like the top jazz band at the college I went to. Okay, cool. Um, and it's because I read music very well. Mm-hmm. The other drummer who auditioned, who was also a freshman, he did not read music very well. Uh-huh. And so he did not make the band, but he's actually, he was a superior drummer. And it was interesting because as I started working more as a musician, that was my first career. I, I realized how reliant I was on reading. And so like, I, it was very difficult for me to learn songs in, I had to like write out the music. I had to mm. have a chart. I couldn't just do it by ear a lot where my friend Thomas, who's still a phenomenal drummer. He, he, uh, while he wasn't good reading the music, he had the ear where he could pick up stuff so fast. It's a different mm. skill set. I'm not saying that's yeah, about yeah, 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 yeah. but, but it is something where I was lacking in what I could hear as a musician because mm. I was so reliant on reading. And I think the same thing happens uh, for Bible readers today. Right, right. We get so used to reading things yes. that when there's those things that are meant to be heard, exactly. it's, 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 a, it's a completely different skill set. Exactly. Um, and it's like, that's the way ultimately that the book was designed to be consumed or mm-hmm. digested. It's by hearing it. So we got to make sure that, hey, that's, that's part of our interpretive skill sets that we need yep. to practice on a regular basis yeah absolutely my first career was in music as well but uh, uh it didn't last very did, long did you, did you work at tower records well, yeah <laughs> i sold right yeah no it didn't last long because i could neither sing nor read music so it yeah. was just it was just it didn't work it was a pretty bad career yeah mom's like no you should do something else I'm like yeah, really yeah. And, and is that when you gave up the recorder in the third grade <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah okay. it was okay. really good it was really good so yeah. so the phrase then i will show you Yes. That's not referring to future things. And like, I, like I will, right. cause that, that's, that is future tense, but in the context, that's not talking about from our future standpoint. No, this is going to be one of the hardest things to wrap our, our minds around. And I have a feeling Vinny that even you will struggle a little bit. Cause it's, I know we've talked about this a few times, Yeah, yeah. but we have learned to read the book of revelation as though John's telling a story as to what's taking place. Mm-hmm. Linearly. And this happened, yeah, mm-hmm. literally. And this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. So mm-hmm. when John says, after this, it means like the next thing that happens. But the reality is, is John's referring to the vision. So after this refers to the next thing that happened in my vision. Now, the question is, is the vision telling us things that happen in actual order, or is the vision just simply John's way of constructing the story? Now, as soon as I use the word story, people are like, uh, I don't know if I like this because are you saying by story that it's not true? Yeah, it means fiction. It mean, yeah. yeah, it means fiction, right? It's, he's just telling you a story. We have to grasp the fact that this is literature that was read aloud, meant to be heard, and that literature is conveying truths with apocalyptic imagery and a prophetic guise and the framework of a letter to the people of his day saying, listen, guys, Remember the questions that we left last time are you have to overcome, but what does overcoming mean? Mm-hmm. And what is it that I'm overcoming? And so John's now going to tell you the story to, to characterize, hey, this is the reality of what's going on in this world. And so we're constantly going to be going, okay, this is a narrative. This is a narrative. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? So that's going to be the key. And it'll be, it's difficult to grasp just because we've so read in the text one way, as though he's telling us what happens in, in chronological order or linear. And yet all of a sudden now we're like, okay, this is literature. I have to grasp my, uh, my mind around that. So two things on that. Yep. First off, something can be true without yes. being historical or physical. What we, we don't mean historically or physically true, but it is true is what, what is what John is presenting here. Yes. But even saying historical, it's like, well, what I mean is it doesn't, it doesn't have to mean it's historical. It doesn't have to mean it's physical. Right, we, but we it doesn't think- have to mean it's not historical. That's okay, a, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. In other words, Satan's not actually a seven-headed dragon. Correct. Who lives in the sea. Mm-hmm. Yet we understand, or in the ancient world, we understand the sea is the place of the abyss. It's yeah. the place of destruction. The sea covered the world in Genesis, and God had to separate the seas to make dry land so he can create. He destroys the world with a flood. So sea is decreation. It's the home of the abyss. 
It's the home of evil. So they understand that. Does that mean that Satan's not real? No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. Does that mean that Satan's not actually trying to deceive the woman or trying to devour her child? Oh, no, no, he really is trying to do those things. It's just simply telling us this in a narrative way, not in what we conceive of as historical or, mm-hmm. or what we conceive of as history. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. There are, you know, just to, because I think when people are trying to create new categories, yeah. they have questions. Well, what about, there are many things in scripture that we say are historical truth. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we are talking about a historical event that actually literally happened. That, that's correct. Let me be a little bit provocative here for a second. There's no question that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith mm-hmm. and that Jesus died, literally died, literally rose again on the third day. No doubt about that. I have no doubt that he appeared to the disciples and appeared to Mary and, and, and those things. However, was there actual literal historical darkness mm-hmm. for three okay. hours while he was on the cross? Like in Matthew 27. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was uh-huh. there actually an earthquake while he was on mm-hmm. the cross? Did the, te- the, the temple veil actually tear in half? Mm-hmm. Did the tombs of many dead people actually break open and these dead people zombie-like walk around the streets of Jerusalem? Maybe, but Matthew in this instance, that's Matthew 27, is using apocalyptic imagery to describe the most significant event in human history beyond maybe the creation and the incarnation, mm-hmm. kind of putting these all together. Those are questions we ask. I think, I know, by the way, I know people that have actually gotten fired mm-hmm. from conservative seminaries because they questioned whether or not the tombs actually broke open and bodies actually walked along the mm-hmm. streets. But the reality is that's what we do as interpreters. We say, wait a minute, he's telling us a historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus, but he's using apocalyptic imagery. Yeah. And the apocalyptic imagery is meant to convey truth, but it's not necessarily meant to convey historical reality. Mm-hmm. So as a as a exegete, as an interpreter of the text, I'm like, well, uh, now, by the way, if I'm in a church setting and I'm preaching a sermon, I'm just going to let that go. Mm-hmm. Because the congregation, our, our listeners, by the way, are just clearly way ahead of everybody else. That's <laughs> right. why I can say well, what to, I just said. To listen to this podcast. Yeah, that's right. If you yeah. listen here, There'd have yeah. to be something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to start giving honorary degrees next year for yes. those who have been longtime listeners. Yeah. And by the way, we're going to have our 100th episode of you and I. And, and if you've listened to all 100 episodes, we're going to give you like a certificate of something. But yes. no, the point is because the congregation does, they don't know how to process that the average person in the pew. So I'm not going to say that there, but, mm-hmm. but that's the reality of this. So yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, no doubt about it, but did the tombs actually break open? Uh, I'm not sure that's the case. Okay. Yeah. Satan really tried to devour the child, but is he actually a seven headed dragon standing before a woman? No, but I get the idea. Yeah. It's interesting. Just closing up on that point. There's a famous Christian apologist, Mike Lacona, who adamantly defends the resurrection. He's done a lot of stuff on the, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus and yeah. conservative Baptist. Very conservative. Uh, Isn't very, he the guy that got fired that I was thinking about? I'm trying to think if he was actually fired, but he definitely got shunned because he's a yeah. biblical scholar. He was working yeah. on his PhD and he was writing on this very subject. Yeah. And this is a guy who he defends. He has books on defending the historicity of the resurrection. Yeah. But then he says, from a, a genre standpoint, yeah. this is a, a apocalyptic. This is probably not historical. And man, that guy, talk about cancel culture. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and it's funny because he's people, the guy I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it just absolutely blacklisted when he was yeah. just, he, he's just trying to be a good historian uh, and right. scholar. And it's like, we're, he's we're, like, and he still writes something. He's, still, he's like, no, I'm defend the resurrection. Yeah. He's a very conservative evangelical. There's yes. no question about it. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. All right, should we read uh, the rest of chapter four? Yeah, let's read chapter four and and include chapter five, verse one also, because there's something important I want to. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with uh, golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and pearls of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven uh, torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, uh, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And we read chapter five, verse one also, because it, it illustrates the point I was making earlier that John's telling a narrative. Mm-hmm. The narrative starts in the throne room and then the scene changes as all of a sudden in the right hand of the father is a book. And that becomes the center of, the, of this uh, vision of, of this scene, at least the heavenly, heavenly vision, uh, namely the scroll. Let me segue for a second here. When I first started teaching, I was teaching Christian high school and teaching Bible, and I was raised literalist interpretation and how Lindsay and all that good stuff. And I just simply did not have the time to do any detailed study of the book of revelation at all. And I'm teaching the teaching Bible and I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, revelation four and five, nothing really happens here. Nothing's important. Chapter six, the seven seals. Let's kind of get to that kind of skipped over chapters four and five. Cause it just didn't seem to mean, mean, mean a whole lot. And then the next time I go to, to teach that a couple of years later, I had had the opportunity to begin to do some more detailed studies. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. This is, Chapters four and five are the center of the book, mm-hmm. and they serve as the foundation for everything that follows. You can't just skip to the seven seals or the seven trumpets and get to the good stuff. This scene is central to understanding the book of Revelation. But how does that work? Because chapters six through 19 and 20 even, yeah, 20, talk about the chaos that happens, the bad stuff that happens, Satan, wrath, judgment, all this stuff. So chapters four and five seem like a parenthetical, like worship scene. So how is the foundation? Well, the way it starts off first, and that's this, is an apocalypse is telling their readers or hearers the way things really are, right? Remember, they're revealing to you what is actually a mystery. You didn't realize this. It looks like Caesar's on the throne, Mm. It looks like, you know, in our world, money, sex, and power are the way to go. But the reality is God's on the throne. And was, when you open up chapter four and you see one sitting on a throne, that is anti-imperial. It's a direct attack on Caesar. It's and treason. It's, it's treasonous. Mm-hmm. Exactly. God's the one on the throne and not Caesar. And that's the beginning of this. Right, and now as we move forward, and by the way, the word throne occurs 12 times in mm-hmm. chapter four. So, and that's going to, and 12 obviously is the number for the people of God. So that's going to be something important. In fact, the word throne or, or references to, well, reference to the, references to the throne occur 47 times in the book of Revelation. Now they're not always to God's throne, but put that in context. The word throne occurs 62 times in the entire New Testament. Wow. 47 of them are in the book of Revelation. The idea that this is the center of the universe. Remember in Eden, God's throne where God dwelt was where the tree of life is. It's the center of it, of it all. So well, and also see, with that yeah. throne, throne in the ancient world is not merely, remember, we go back to separation of church and state in our modern context. Mm-hmm. You don't separate the state in the ancient world. The throne is where the gods rule from, you know, in terms of like, they're given their power to a, a local regency and something like that. It's like, yeah. this is, this is heavily involved with the divine. Yeah. 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 Caesar's on the throne because the gods put him there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the throne also, we're going to have an interview with uh, Dr. Alan Bandy in a couple of weeks. The throne also is the place of judgment and justice. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a center from which he rules politically, but it's also which he rules socially and justice and, every, and everything else as well. Now, note then, so throne central to the book of Revelation, and I'll, I'll mention two, two different ways it is central. But notice also that in chapter 2, verse 13, the city of Pergamum is where Satan's throne is. Uh, notice also in chapter 13, verse 2, the beast 
receives his power, throne, and great authority from the dragon. And then in chapter 16, during the seven bulls, the throne of the beast is plunged into darkness. So the contrast is grand. It's who rules. This is what I think you have to realize the Gospels is all about. Satan comes to Jesus and says, all the kingdoms of the world I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. The question is, who's the ruler? Mm -hmm. And how are we going to rule? Are we going to rule at the behest of Satan? Or are we going to rule at the behest of, the, of God? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We get wisdom from God. Adam and Eve chose to get wisdom from self or to listen to the wisdom from the serpent. So the contrast then is God's rule versus the rulers of the world. And this is a central. The second reason why this is so important, why this is not just a parenthetical statement, and that is in chapter 21 and 22, 21, 9 through 22, 9, the throne of God comes down from heaven to the earth. Now heaven and earth become one. And that, of course, is the central focus of, of the biblical story. So uh, God's sitting on the throne, and but it's in heaven right now. That throne will come down to the new Jerusalem or down to the earth in 21 and 22. And the question is like, well, why is there a delay? Why has it not happened yet? Mm -hmm. Why is God delaying the bringing of his throne to the earth? There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more kids starving to death, no more murders, no more violence. Why doesn't he do this? Secondly, I guess we ask, which is kind of a subset of the same question, what has to happen in order that God will indeed bring his throne down from heaven? So the center of the, of the story is uh, God's throne. And the question then becomes, what must happen for God's throne, which is in heaven, come down to the new, to the new creation? Hmm. Let me add one more thing really quickly, Vinny, and that's this. This is what the Lord's prayer is all about. Mm -hmm. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer of the Lord's prayer is asking God to bring his kingdom to the earth. Now, in the meantime, we are to manifest this kingdom now, but ultimately we, we want that kingdom to come down from heaven to the earth. Hmm. So the key then is it's not the tribulation that's going to happen that, you know, like we, like I said, in the beginning, it's popularly believed that chapter right. four is representing the seven years in which the church is removed from the earth because there's a tribulation happening. So it's not about the tribulation. It's not about a rapture. It's not about Armageddon, um, but there is a lot of imagery here. Um, I know that in a couple of weeks we're going to have, I'm really excited about this interview. We're going to have Nelson Crable on yes. great scholar. I remember reading one of his books years ago on uh, the book of revelation. It's just oh, he's such a great writer, but he's going to talk about some of the imagery and highlight the importance of the scene. Uh, but it seemed, you know, I know one of the things that we talked about early on in the series was that to understand the book of revelation, you have to look to the old Testament. And so, so far we've talked a lot about the imperialism and uh, Roman, the Greco-Roman context. How do we look at the Old Testament to see any uh, imagery in chapter four? All right, so that, this is the key. So the idea that's been popularized by Hal Lindsey and all that kind of stuff is that John's seeing a vision of the future. The reality is John's seeing the past. He's looking backwards, looking at the Old Testament. He's looking at Isaiah. He's looking at Daniel. He's looking, looking at Ezekiel, looking at, at Zechariah. But the key is, when he looks back at those Old Testament passages, that, that's where the language comes from. That's where the, the verbiage comes from. That's where the imagery comes from. And we'll look at some examples in a minute. But the key is, is that for John, that imagery has become a present reality being fulfilled because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to see that in chapter five, which we'll get to in, in several weeks. The center of the chapter five is going to be that Jesus is able to take that scroll that's in the God's right hand and open it because he was slain. There you go. The death and then the resurrection of Jesus is central. So let's begin by looking at some passages that kind of help highlight this. I'll put the verse in the show notes. So if you want to go back later on and spend more time in these passages, I encourage you to do so. But the first scene that's very significant for Revelation chapter four is found in Ezekiel chapter one. So in Ezekiel chapter one, we have Ezekiel seeing God uh, basically on his throne, which by the way, he's, he's in Babylon. What's important, what's interesting mm -hmm. to know is that Ezekiel's in Babylon and he sees God in Babylon, not in the temple any longer. Uh, but uh, Ezekiel chapter one, like verses four through 14, and I'll just kind of glance over them a little bit. He says, verse four, I saw a storm wind coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth and a bright light. And it's missed with something like glowing metal in the midst of fire. And within it, these, there were these figures, something like four living beings and their appearance, like they had human form. They each had four faces, verse six. And they each had four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof and they gleamed like burnished bronze. I won't continue on, but you get that. This, this is similar to John's four living creatures. In fact, verse 10 says, 
Uh, the form of their faces had the face like a, of a man, but all four had the face of a lion on the right and the a face of a bull on their left, and all four had the face of an eagle. So you can see John's imagery is different, but it's very similar to this particular uh, description. So let's go down to chapter one in the book of Ezekiel, verses 26 to 28. Do, do you want to read those verses? And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated on the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So is the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. All right, so you can see some of the imagery here. So John and Ezekiel both have a rainbow. Mm -hmm. They both have flashes of lightning and fiery torches. They both have a crystal expanse. And they both have these four living creatures. It's very clear that John's imagery, the vision that he's giving to us of God's throne and the one sitting on the throne derives largely from the book of Ezekiel. Now there's another background and that's Isaiah chapter one. Now, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter six. And both these passages are gonna be very important when we get to Revelation chapter 10. So just keep in mind, Ezekiel chapter one, Isaiah chapter six. So let's go to Isaiah chapter six. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to read again, Vinny? Uh, chapter yeah. six, verses one through eight. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two. Uh, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Verse seven, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Okay. So what you have here is a divine a throne room scene. Again, that parallels a little bit with what we see in the book of Revelation. And you also have Isaiah as being commissioned as a prophet. When we get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a throne room scene. It's longer, it's more extensive. And clearly a, a more significant background for the book of Revelation. But in Ezekiel chapters two and three, you have Ezekiel being commissioned as a prophet. So just keep this in mind. This is where the imagery comes from. I have a couple of quick questions. Sure. Going back to Ezekiel, it talks about the likeness. That term likeness pops up a lot. Mm -hmm. So my first thought was, oh, is this like a simile? It's like this, but it's mm -hmm. not the thing itself. But then I started thinking to creation language, Adam and Eve, you know, humankind was created in the likeness of God. They're not God themselves, but there's, right. there, there is some sort of correlation there. There's uh, so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this has got to be some sort of like ancient language that likeness is reflecting something, but it's not the thing itself. All right. So here's the next thing to think about. And that's this in revelation chapter four, God is actually never described. He sees one sitting oh, on the okay. throne uh -huh. and the one sitting on the throne was like a Jasper stone. That's mm. actually really important. The word Jasper occurs only four times in the book of revelation. Here's one occurrence. I'm not going to tell you the other three occurrences. We'll get to them probably in like eight months, but it'll be a while till we get to them. Uh -huh. But God's described being like a Jasper stone and like a Sardius. I think your translation said a Carnelian. Yeah, yeah. So God's actually not described. Now think about this from the Old Testament context. No one can see God and live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even Moses was stuck in a cave. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass by. You're going to barely see the back of my back. And Moses comes down from the mountainside and he's like glowing. Hey, Moses, put something, put something over your face. Cause like, we can't stand it. Moses did not see God's face in revelation 22. However, the description of the new Jerusalem, it says, and they will see his face mm. and his name will be on their foreheads. So one of the things that's happening is that they are not actually seeing God. They're seeing like this beauty and glory that emanates from God. Mm -hmm. And so they use what? Well, yeah. A simile. It was like a rainbow around the throne. It was, like an emerald and like a jasper stone because they actually can't see him. And it, this makes sense too in a, in Hebrew context. Cause you look at the second commandment, it's it don't create any graven images. You don't, don't try to create what God looks like. Uh, so yeah. it, it, it almost seems like it has that, that 
going back to the roots of like, no, we don't try to create Yahweh. There's, there's a couple of reasons for the command, though. One of the reasons, obviously, is because in the ancient world, when you create an image, mm-hmm. you worship the image, and the image yes. replaces the deity itself mm-hmm. and gets all the worship. But we are the image of God. Yes, yes. You don't create an image of God because that's what we're supposed to be. Yeah. And it, it fails to understand the missional call of God's people as the image bearers of God. So, yeah. Mm, that's good. Uh, when we were reading through Isaiah 6 just a second ago, now to go to that, hearing Isaiah 6, hearing uh, Revelation chapter 4, it kind of has that idea of a divine courtroom. And I, I know we're, we're going to talk about divine, you know, injustice issues with Alan Bandy in a couple of weeks. Yes. Uh, but I don't know. Do we want to like yeah. hint at that a little bit and, and kind of give a prequel to that? That's right. So we kind of alluded to it earlier. There's two great things that come from the fact that God's sitting on a throne. The first is the fact that God's on the throne, not Caesar, and that God's the one who rules, not Caesar. It just looks like Caesar's ruling right now, but he's not. God's in control. The second thing is, is that God sitting on a throne means God's the judge. Mm-hmm. And he's a righteous judge. Remember, it's God's people who are suffering under the oppression of Rome and wherever else it might be. And as we get to chapter six, they're going to go, how long, O Lord, how long? Which is this great cry throughout the Psalms and the prophets. And so the answer is, hey, guys, you need to understand and know that God is the righteous judge and God is actually the one in control. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. Okay, so then John is, he's acting as a prophet. He's been commissioned as a prophet. And so well, he hasn't been commissioned yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's he's right. Yeah, that commissioned later. Chapter yes. 10. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Chapter 10, when he eats the scroll. You know, he is a prophet and he's, you know, summoned into the divine presence of God and to God's courtroom. Exactly. So Ezekiel chapters one through three, as I alluded to, Isaiah chapter six, they're commissioning passages for the prophets. They come before the divine throne room and then they're commissioned. Who will go for us? Send me, Lord. Here mm-hmm, I am. Mm-hmm. And then they go out on this divine commission. Yeah. So then going back to my question from a few minutes ago, how is it that chapter six through 20 are talking about all this divine judgment? And all I, this I say stuff? by the way, six through 16. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, six through 16. Yeah. So you wouldn't call it like when, when there's a uh, chapter 19, when it seems like this is the, well, it's, it's, it's different because now that you're in the final judgment. So six through 16 okay, okay. are between now and the final judgment. Okay. 17 okay. Uh, and following you have, the, you have the, the great prostitute and you have the bride and that's the kind of the final judgment. Okay. Okay. But yeah. we would say chapters four and five are the theological, theological center of the book because it's providing the establishment of well, who gets to judge. Yeah. Who's, who's, in, who's in power? Who's mm-hmm. on the throne? Exactly. God is the rightful ruler of all things. God is the one on the throne. In fact, the phrase one who sits on the throne occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. Hmm. So, and I, of course, seven perfection, totality, completion, as we said, the numbers and the, the number of times a word occurs or a phrase occurs or whatever is very significant for helping us understand the book of Revelation. And so we kind of know already apocalypses do this. God's on the throne, not Caesar. And John reinforces that conviction because seven times he says the one who sits on the throne is obviously the father. Yeah, and we also read going back to the uh, the seven messages in chapter three, verse twenty one. This and this is the last yeah. verse we have before the throne room scene. Right. To the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, right. as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Exactly. Uh, and, and so there's this idea that this is Jesus sitting on the father's throne. But it's also a call for us to sit on the throne. We're invited so on it. Yeah. Remember, you know, file away that word Jasper. It occurs mm-hmm. four times. Once this, it's the primary word to describe God. Like he was like a Jasper stone. And there'll be three other occurrences. And the hint is that it refers to the fact that we also are called to sit on thrones and rule for God now and in the future. Remember, Jesus told us, his disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Ah, it's about ruling. That's what Adam and Eve were created to do. It's the biblical story coming to fulfillment. Sorry, mm-hmm. I kind of get nerdy on these things, but it's fun. And you're a nerd. Yeah, that's uh, true, that's true. Well, you're a Raider fan. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're about even now. So, yeah, we're good. Exactly. Well, I would just beat you up because that's, what oh, that's true. Yeah. That's, yeah, you would. Shove you in a locker. <laughs> uh, so, so, chapters four and five, it's not merely about who's the ultimate judge, though. It's it's the ultimate judge is the one who is worthy of worship, which is what we talked about in the very intro. Like, this is why chapters four and five are uh, just rooted in the worship of God. And so much of our worship comes from here. Yeah. And we can't overlook this as we talk about like the storyline and all those good things there as well. The fact that God's the one on the throne, 
is good news for the poor and for the oppressed. There's going to be justice. There's going to be judgment. It's going to be great. This is central to the story of God's throne coming down. But it's also a place to stop and go. And because he's the one on the throne, he's worthy of worship. Because he's the eternal God of all creation, he's the one who's worthy of worship. So it describes why God is worthy of worship. One of the weird questions, and I, I've heard teachings on this in the church, which are always kind of a scratch my head, the identification of the beings that are around yeah, the throne. Yeah, right. So in, in verses four and five, around the throne were 24 elders seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads from the, and then, you know, there's, you know, lightning and rumblings and all that kind of stuff. Who are these kinds of people? We even have people on the sides, four living creatures. They have, they're full of eyes and front and behind, you know, oxes, all this. It's just strange stuff. So who are these people? I wouldn't use the word people because they're or not people. beings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Beings. They're probably relating back to the book of Genesis and the divine council. The significance is this, the fact that there are 24 elders. Well, 24 is the result of 12 plus 12. And that's, certainly what John's doing. I mean, the fact that he uses numbers so often and so consistently and so, and so significantly, there's no question in my mind that it's 12 plus 12. And of course, you'll see in the New Jerusalem, there's going to be 12 gates and 12 foundations. The 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes. The 12 foundation stones have the names of the 12 apostles. 12 and 12, or 12 times 12, the 144,000 in chapter 7, or the New Jerusalem, the walls are 144 cubits thick. It's 12 and 12. So that tells us that the 12 would be the Old Testament tribes and 12 would be the New Testament apostles. So whoever or whatever these guys are, beings are, they're probably angelic beings representing the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of, of the New Testament. Mm, okay. Now, and by the way, there's all kinds of theories out there. So what I just said is not by any means the unanimous Definitive. consent uh -huh. of every, Yeah. The fact that the 24 elders are on thrones suggests that they're ruling also. That just goes with what we just said, namely that Jesus is inviting us to sit down on his throne as he sat down on the Father's throne. We're called to rule. And so these are angelic representatives, I think, of the people of God, Old and New Testament uh, saints uh, ruling. Okay. When we had Dr. Dana Harris on, we talked about the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. And yeah. so we discussed that the seven lamps that were blazing are, you know, the Holy Spirit. Uh, is that yeah. is that how you would uh, identify that? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, Dana is absolutely correct. It's, I think it is indeed the Holy Spirit. We talked about Zechariah chapter four. And here's what's important about that. And that's this. We're saying that we as the people of God are called to rule in the present to not succumb to the temptations and powers and pressures of the world as it is, but instead to follow the lamb wherever he goes and not worry about food, not worry about clothing, because God takes care of, of the birds of the air and of the lilies of the field, but instead to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now that sounds great, but it's really difficult. It's almost impossible. Human nature is to seek comfort, to seek power, to seek security. And, and we really do a really good job of all that in the American mm -hmm. church. But the answer is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Hmm. So this, I think this is the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit is central to the story, at least lying in the background. He's the assumed presence and source by which God's people are empowered to do the work that God's calling us to do. Hmm. In uh, verse five. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and pearls of thunder. Uh, what's the significance? Peals of thunder. Uh, peals, of, sorry, peals of thunder. Uh, what's the significance of this? There's going to be a lot of significance of this as we move on. So just kind of lock in the back of your head right now that from the throne, lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. We call this a theophany, a manifestation of God. When God manifests himself, you're going to get phenomena like this. The heavens are going to part. God's going to say, this is my son. When Jesus is crucified, there's going to be an earthquake. That, that's just, that's what happens when God manifests himself. And so you have here, now, no, no, by the way, there's no earthquake here because it's in heaven. And so there's no earthquakes in heaven. So there's lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. But it, it parallels God's appearance to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. This is phenomena that accompany the presence of God. Hmm. In verses six through eight. I think I know the identification of these four living creatures because they're described as having full of eyes front and behind. And my mom in the car growing up, there's three, <laughs> three boys. We had a station wagon. We'd sit she in the was back. one of them. Huh? And, and she said she had eyes in the back of her head because she'd go to always see what we we're doing in the back seat. Yeah. And she could. So I'm, I'm assuming that this is my mom. And by the way, and it's never the dad. It's always the mom. It's mom. 
right? You know, dad, mom always knows, but dad has, dad has like no clue. Dad has no clue. Yeah. 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 When yeah. dad's home, you know, if dad's home and mom's not, you're like, you're free to go. You're free. Exactly. To, you're free to walk. But mom, the, you know, mom said, I have eyes in the back of my head. I know what yeah, you're doing. She does. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's not my mom. It's not, it's not your mom. So the four living creatures, there's been a number of theories in terms of who they are as well, but they seem to represent the strongest of the wild animals. That's the lion. Okay. The strongest of the domesticated animals. That's the ox. And my translation says a calf, but it's, it's an ox. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if it's a calf or if it's an yeah, adult, full -grown, full grown adult. So strongest wild animal, the strongest domestic animal, and then the swiftest of the birds, the eagle. And then of course, humanity. So it seems, mm -hmm. and number four mm -hmm. is the number for creation four winds in the four directions. So the fact that there's four of them seems to be totality with regards to the created animals and wild animals, domestic animals, birds, and hum humans. And you might think, well, fish aren't mentioned mm -hmm. here, but that's because the, sea, come from the sea is mm -hmm. the source of cosmic evil. So mm -hmm. there's a different sea here that we'll get to later on in chapter 15. Hmm. It's interesting. I'm just even thinking that this would be a whole nother study. Other than Jonah and the fish, the great fish, do you really have a, and you know, obviously you have fishermen, so they're, yeah. they're capturing fish for food in that regard. Right. Yeah. And Jesus catches fish, 153 yeah, but, of them. But other than like catching fish and Jonah, is there any significance to fish in the Bible? Because you see a lot with beasts and animals on land. You just don't see anything. I, this is just totally sidebar. I'm, I'm just thinking like, I'm, well, I'm trying to think through the biblical story. Yeah, I think if someone comes along in your church and starts telling you stories about fish, I think something fishy is going on. <laughs> That's how I would explain it. So. Sad trombone. Uh, chapter four ends then like this is where worship then climaxes. Yeah, the four yeah. living creatures do the holy, holy, holy from Isaiah. Uh, you have the 24, hour, the 24 elders who say, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive you know, glory and honor and power. Uh, so it, really things seem like they're starting to climax now. Yeah, yeah. A side note here as well. Note that it says the four living creatures do not cease to say, mm -hmm. holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Well, that's an exaggeration because in yes. the next chapter, they're going to say something else. Exactly. Yeah. So again, that's this narrative and not historical linear uh, mm -hmm. storytelling. The main point of these chapters is that God is the one who is worthy of being glorified because he's sovereign and holy. He's the one who was and who is and who is to come. And he's the one who sits on the throne and he's our Lord and our God. Now, this means Caesar is not our Lord and our God. And there's a little bit of a question here. Some people who argue that the book of Revelation was written later on. So mm -hmm. there's usually two dates that are, that are thrown around for the book of Revelation. One is before 70, which is before the destruction of destruction. Jerusalem, and yeah. during the time of Nero, somewhere along the Nero's persecution of the Christians. The others will say, no, it was written late, maybe during the reign of Domitian, who was the emperor from 81 to 96. And I tend to favor the late date. I don't think it's of utmost significance. I think there's just not enough evidence that it was written early. So there's evidence that Domitian was addressed as our Lord and our God. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not certain that John's using this language to refer to our Lord and our God as the one who sits on the throne and not Caesar, but that may be actually a background that, that, that it's, it's anti-imperial using the language that Domitian wanted to be applied to himself hmm. and supplying it to the father. And then note again, it's because you created all things. So God is the one who's sovereign and holy and in power and is worthy of worship. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Vinny, let me stop for a second here, but I think we need to recognize the fact that within the church, we're all different. And some people go, Oh, you got to pray for like an hour a day. Right. And I hear that. I'm like, there's, uh, there's no way. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't do it because my mind, probably like yep, you, right? ADD, man. It, it, we are mm -hmm. going to be, I, I can mm -hmm. try to pray for an hour a day. And I might've got five minutes in during that, mm -hmm. during that hour, because the other 55, my mind's going somewhere else. And so I have to learn how to pray distinctly, differently, just like consistently throughout the day. But my prayers are, are usually short because that's the length of my mm -hmm. attention span. Mm -hmm. The same thing with worship. I struggle in worship because I get so distracted. Mm -hmm. I can't listen to the, I'm thinking about like what's going on. I'm thinking about this, you know, and when, a, when you're reading the text, if you're reading a, a Bible verse, I have to read along with you yep. because a, I can't follow you. If you're reading, nope. if I can't listen to you and, and follow you. Yep. And if I'm not following you, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then I zone out. I remember yep. when I was a little kid, my mom was like, I was in church and everyone would be laughing. I'm like, why are they laughing? I, I said, mom, why was everybody laughing? Oh, cause he told a joke. I'm like, Oh, he tells jokes. Okay. So I had to listen 
so that I could listen to the joke. I wanted to hear the joke, right? And I was really bad at it because everyone's laughing again. I go, oh, I guess something's important. I think we're all different. We worship differently. We pray differently. We think differently. We, we have different gifts there. Yours and my gifts tend to be focusing on the text and the mm-hmm. meaning of the text. And for me, that is worship. And my worship is meditating on the text as much as possible. And I get distracted quite often, but that's my prayer as well. And I just want to remind people, worship looks different for different people, but worship is central and vital to who we are and what we're created to be. Yeah. And just, I mean, we're kind of reflecting on the text right now. The thing that has always struck me with this text specifically, when we are often motivated to worship God, it's oftentimes in response to what I have received. Like, yes, I'm going to yes, worship yes. you because you gave this to me. Thank yes, you for yes. giving me my, my wife and my yeah. son. Thank you for giving me a house. It's, it's gratitude, which is, hey, good reasons to worship. Right, right. But when you look at this, I love this chapter because it's like a baseline of worship. Yeah. And why is the father worshiped? Because you're holy, because you just have always been. Yeah, you, you, uh, you are. You is. You is. Yeah. Uh, because, because you created all things and because by your will, they exist and they were created. Like that, like... I am not in any part of that equation. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's a good remembrance for us. Like that's the good starting place. I think you want to go for worship. It's great to worship because of all those things, mm-hmm. but because shouldn't be indicative of your worship. Yeah. And let me give a sidebar here. And I, I hesitate to do this because it distracts us from our conversation that we're having here. As we wrap up, I've heard, especially young earth creationists who have mm-hmm. a particular interpretation of the book of Genesis go see that God is the creator is central to why he's worthy of worship. And my answer is you're exactly right. Totally. But that doesn't mean that your understanding of creation mm-hmm. is the actual, the, the correct one. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of impose their reading of the Genesis narrative on this text and say, see, it's central to believe in the creation narrative. And therefore you can't believe in da, 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 or all the different viewpoints. It's like, that's not what it's saying. It's just simply saying God's the creator. It doesn't yep. say how he created or the means of creation or whether he did it in seven 24 hour days that's not answered here. Mm-hmm. What's answered here is that God is the creator and he's mm-hmm. worthy of worship. And yeah. he's the one who's the true Lord. All right. Well, hey, good stuff. We uh, Are we finished with chapter four? Or are we coming back to this next week? We are done. We, we've guess. covered chapter four. Now we're going to come back in a couple of weeks with, uh, sure. with Nelson Crable and say, hey, help us understand some more of this imagery and the images of, the, of not just chapters four, but throughout the book of Revelation. How do we understand the imagery, the significance of the imagery? And I hope we're going to discuss a lot about this his book is titled Apocalypse and Allegiance, mm-hmm. and we're going to get into some really good issues and good conversations with him. So it's going to be phenomenal. Awesome. Meditate on chapters four and five, especially. Amen. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll come back in. If you're in real time, we're off on Labor Day. So remember we're that. Off on Labor Day. That's right. But a uh, good time to just sit and reflect on the text. So. so how about we close with me leading us in a song of holy, holy, holy. I think that would be fantastic. If you could do the first stanza. Holy. Solo. <laughs> I was really trying. I know you're laughing. That was actually my uh, an effort to be good. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> See, it, I was it so me good. To I, I choked, choked me up. Yeah. All right. Well, the rest of you guys can fill in the rest of the song by yourself. Have a yeah, good just week. go to Spotify. You'll find a really good version there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed something pre-singing, and we'll uh, catch you guys next time. Okay. <laughs> to thank you for joining us on today's podcast and we would love for you to share the work of determined truth with others please follow this podcast and give a review on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people